Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Lauren Dempster. I'm a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and I am delighted today to be joined by my colleague Dr Claire Wright who is a postdoctoral research fellow here in the school. To start us off Claire could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your own research? Thank you very much Lauren and, and first of all thank you very much for the invitation to participate in LawPod. As you rightly say I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here in the School of Law. I've been here since 2020. I started just a month before the pandemic set in. Um, I consider myself a bit of an elder postdoc fellow because I finished my PhD in 2012. Um, So I studied for my PhD in Salamanca in Spain and then I worked in Mexico for seven years as a lecturer and a researcher. So I've I've moved around a bit, I guess you could say. Um, And in terms of my research interests, primarily I've been interested for many years now in the politics of human rights um, and I'm very sort of driven by empirical observations, so what's important to people on the ground, so to speak, and my regional expertise is on Latin America. So there's two topics mainly I've been interested in and worked on. One is emergency powers, so how does the executive use emergency powers for political purposes in Latin America? Um, Unfortunately, there's just too much empirical evidence of that behaviour. That's one of my research research areas. Um, Another research area is on the political participation of indigenous peoples in Latin America and particularly that agenda has been driven very much by conversations with indigenous people um, and meetings with indigenous people so that's more or less where my research experience sits. Thank you Claire. I'm excited to hear more about your research through this episode. In particular we are focusing on the research that you're involved in for a project that explores uh, post-colonial legacies in transitional justice. Can you introduce that project for us? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. I'm working on a really exciting project currently um, as of 2020. I've been working with Professor Nia Loyne, um, who's a professor at the law school, and Bill Rolston, who's professor emeritus professor at TJI and Ulster University. Um, and we're working on this project looking at colonial legacy um, and its relevance for transitional justice processes. So the project is part of um, a hub, a GCRF Global Challenges Research Fund Hub, um, which is run out of the London School of Economics. This is the Gender, Justice and Security Hub. brings together 32 projects on different issues relating to the women, peace and security agenda. And our particular project is within the transformation and empowerment stream of the hub. And we're interested in sort of finding a place or finding a relevance of um, colonial legacies for contemporary transitional justice processes and also working out how transitional justice processes may be able to deal or not, with Colonial Legacy. Thank you, Claire. And for our listeners, we can put the link to the Gender Justice Security Hub and that information in our show notes so they can follow up and find out more about that. So I guess this is a big question, but by way of setting the scene for the rest of this episode, could you give us a sense of the relationship between transitional justice and colonial harm sort of so far? Sort of where are we at in, in that picture? Um, this is a really important and timely question, I think. One of Bill and Fanula's observations in an article they wrote on colonial legacy in Ireland is that really sort of colonial injustices and harm hadn't been taken up as a transitional justice issue. They were largely absent discussions on this issue within transitional justice 
processes. And for the same reason, there was not much academic literature um, on the issue. It's very sort of embryonic, the state of the, the field in this particular area. Um, but recent years, we've seen more interest, both in practice and in academia, on um, colonial harm and transitional justice. For example, the special rapporteur on truth, justice, reparation and guarantees of non-recurrence um, asked for um, inputs to a report that he was uh, bringing together on colonial harm and transitional justice. And there have been instances, for example, Belgium um, has created a truth commission to look into colonial harms in, in Africa. The African Union, likewise, has um, had some public statements on the importance of looking at colonial harms through a transitional justice lens. So bearing in mind a sort of a, a silence generally in the field, there seems to be more interest. Obviously, in settler colonial contexts such as Australia and Canada, with apologies to um, in the past 10 years or so, there has been more interest as well. So it being a bit of an area that was perhaps um, under-discussed for a long time, both in practice and, and in theory, is now becoming more, more relevant. And in terms of the relationship between transitional justice and colonialism, there's kind of two strands of thought, I would say. One is the idea that Transitional justice must deal with colonial harm. It has to be seen through that lens. There must be reparations. There must be truth commissions into what happened in the past. That's one approach. Another approach, which is slightly more controversial, but I think equally interesting, is considering the capacity, the capacity of transitional justice to reproduce colonial dynamics. Um, transitional justice has often been seen as a tool coming from the global north to, in inverted commas, civilise countries in the global south. And there are people working in, and making a living out of this. And so have been criticisms as well that transitional justice itself has the sort of DNA of colonialism written into it. So there's plenty of discussion in the literature on that possibility too. So um, I'd say it's, it's a very timely question. It's a timely issue, um, particularly in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, Black Lives Matter protests. Issues of race and historical structures of inequality have become more salient. So I think that's where we're at. Thank you, Claire. It's such an important area to look at. And I think we're going to come back to both of those sort of key critiques that you mentioned and unpack them a bit. To come back, I guess, to your project for, for a second, like you've mentioned a couple of places where we have seen transitional justice efforts to deal with colonial harm. The project you're involved in focuses on Colombia. Can you tell me a bit about that choice in terms of like the rationale and, and why you're using that case study? Yes, Colombia seemed an obvious choice because of the fact that there's a recent transitional justice process still um, undergoing. Uh, the 2016 Havana Peace Accords is just a few years ago. It was very, very important in terms of its impact in Latin America and beyond. So in terms of the transitional justice process itself, that's a really relevant one. It's a, a considerably sized conflict with many victims and the colonial nature of Latin America as a region, the colonial past of Latin America as a region makes it a key area to study this. We find in, in the English-speaking world there's many studies on ex-colonies from English-speaking colonial projects, whereas the Spanish-speaking world sometimes is underrepresented. Not always, but it's underrepresented in our sort of post-colonial studies field. Um, so it would be important to bring different regions under the, the microscope, so to speak. So Colombia seemed like a, an obvious choice from like a, an empirical and academic point of view. We also have the sort of bandwidth to work in Colombia, we have partners there, I have experience there. Um, so that was a, a whole range of reasons why Colombia seemed to be an, an obvious choice to study in our project. Yeah, and like those logistical issues, like they really matter when you're, you're thinking about fieldwork. So you've uh, introduced your case study in terms of, of the rationale for, for picking it for the project. Could you say a little bit about 
in terms of the peace building efforts that we've seen in Colombia so far, has there been much effort to deal with the legacies of colonialism? Yeah, again, that's a really important question. And I think we're at a stage to be able to give a decent answer to that. And we've carried out two rounds of online field work um, with different colleagues in, in Colombia, the first of which was with academics trying to sort of get a, a sense of how important colonialism had been or not in the discussions um, of the peace accord and in the transitional justice institutions set up afterwards. So we can say categorically that colonialism wasn't a key topic discussed in Havana uh, and it hasn't been discussed so much afterwards as a term in itself or as a kind of historical frame that really represents the conflict. That's a mainstream vision but really it's not been the focus point okay, of this uh, process. That doesn't mean to say it's not been relevant and it doesn't mean to say either that the transitional justice efforts in Colombia haven't dealt with colonial legacy because we believe they have but it's not been a frame that's been publicly sort of used by the main actors, I'll come back to that, but by the main actors, right? So um, what we find is that colonial legacies are relevant for the transitional justice process in Colombia in different spheres. For example, the way land is distributed, we can trace the concentration of land to landowners, cattle ranches and their political influence back to colonial times and independence times. We can trace back racial hierarchies very clearly to the um, Spanish conquest and then the slave trade um, involving Afro-descendant and black people in Colombia. And we can also trace back um, gender binaries, sort of a strong patriarchal system to the Spanish way of doing things. So we find these legacies are relevant to understand the conflict. Okay. In the Havana Peace Accord, there's one reference to colonialism, just one, um, and that's talking about the historical harms suffered by indigenous peoples. And they themselves, approaching the, the, the peace accord, the peace process, did talk of this 500 years of resistance, of, of harms. You know, they, they talk about that, the fact that the the sort of period that the the government and the representatives of the FARC had um, established really was very short-sighted and, and narrow-sighted that it should go back further. So there is an actor in all of this claiming that the colonial frame is the necessary one, but it's a marginal actor still um, in the whole process. Having said that, again, there are attempts within the peace process and the transitional justice resulting from that to deal with colonial harms, perhaps without saying what they are. Um, we see that the fact that land, land redistribution is the first thing that comes up in the Havana Peace Accord. And even if implementation is slow, the very fact that you're dealing with land in a country that hasn't had a successful process of land reform, something that's the heart of the conflict and is a key colonial legacy, that could be seen to be decolonial. Um, that's one issue. In terms of ethnicity, these ethnic hierarchies and racial hierarchies that are very prevalent throughout Latin America and in Colombia. Um, this, there is an ethnic chapter in the Havana Peace Accord which talks specifically about the victimisation of people belonging to, in Colombia they call them ethnic groups to cover indigenous, Afro-descendant, palenqueros um, and rom or gypsy people and they say they have suffered specific harms because of their ethnicity. So in a way you could say that again is dealing with this colonial legacy without really going into the colonial origins so much of it. And there are two transitional justice institutions that are underpinned by an under intercultural approach, one of which is um, La JEP, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, and the Truth Commission. Both of them have sort of um, magistrates and commissioners, respectively, from different ethnic groups and have had a sort of remit to deal with ethnic harm. So that's important in Colombia. So you could say, too, that without naming colonialism specifically, um, again, they're trying to help. This is helping unpack um, some of these colonial harms. So uh, sometimes you can deal with issues without saying exactly what they are. 
Um, and we think in our project, at least, we find that um, the transitional process in Colombia, the transitional justice process in Colombia does deal with colonial harms. And it's a kind of a, a backdoor into dealing with colonial harms without necessarily getting into a deep discussion of the colonial origin of these harms. Having said all that, we're awaiting eagerly the report of the Truth Commission, which is due to come out in August. And for example, in Guatemala's um, Truth Commission uh, report from the 1990s, there was a big section on colonial origins um, of the conflict and, and ethnic victimization. So we're waiting to see in Colombia if this may be the case, because from a sort of a very small chink at the start in the wall, it seems to have opened up you know, more and more and more. So it may, may well be that in the, um, the the report, also bearing in mind the global context, which is discussing issues of race and structural injustice, there may be some, but that's speculation currently. Thank you, Claire. It's really fascinating to hear about this, especially at, at this time and at a time both in the project where you have, have some findings and in the timing as it is for Columbia with the Truth Commission report being relatively imminent. I want to come back then to those sort of couple of key critiques that you introduced earlier, the first of which I guess is the fact that sort of TJ or transitional justice, I should say, has been sort of making some efforts in some contexts to deal with colonial legacies. I mean, the intersection of transitional justice and colonialism is an area that I'm only really recently getting into. And one of the things that I've sort of been thinking about is like, if we think about some of the challenges with transitional justice and what we might consider the sort of more traditional applications of transitional justice, such as, for instance, like recognising the full spectrum of victims mm -hmm. and victimhood, establishing temporal parameters of the period that you're dealing with, um, ensuring that there's space for, for those impacted by harm to be heard. I wonder if when we draw sort of colonialism into the mix, does that just exacerbate the challenges that already exist? And I would just wonder like, what your reflections are on the key challenges of, of using transitional justice mm -hmm. to address, you know, harms that are so long lasting um, and often, like as you mentioned, structural. Yeah. I think that's a really important observation and I would say yes, completely. It makes everything much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Colombia and Latin America, we're talking about 500 years. That's a 500 years of political, economic, economic social processes that change the, the landscape, um, you know, both within the colonial frame and, and beyond it. So it does make things more difficult in terms of working out who the victim is, who's the representative of the victim today, who is responsible, who's the perpetrator, what sort of reparations might or might not be necessary. And for example, on the issue of land, you may have competing claims to land ownership, which makes things very complex. So it undoubtedly um, makes this an even more complex scenario than it was. I think we should also distinguish between um, countries where the colonial reckoning is done internally, okay, for someone like Colombia, where they're reckoning with their own, or could be reckoning with their own colonial past, then an interstate, you know, uh, colonial reckoning, so between Colombia and Spain, that'd be different. So we see those two different dynamics, you know, um, in, in the world currently. What I would say, this is a very useful concept that a lot of colleagues in Colombia have mentioned, either using the term or kind of referring to the idea, is the idea of coloniality, the idea that colonialism never really stopped. I think that's the most helpful way to think of this. Um, I was recommended by many interviewees a, a documentary um, which was done in 2010 um, on, to mark the bicentenary of Colombian in independence. And the title of the documentary is Independencia para quien? And that's like independence for whom, right? Is it independence for indigenous people? Is it in independence for black people from whom? From what? Probably not. It's a continuation. So this concept of coloniality, the idea that colonial harm is ongoing, 
right? That's been very useful to us because you can say there are structural injustices, but you have to sort of trace where they come from and why they are maintained. Um, and there are cultural aspects to this. There's political aspects of why some colonial structures aren't undone. And, and the perpetrators could be within the country or they could be from abroad. It doesn't really matter who's doing it. It's kind of a tool of oppression that has roots centuries ago. So I think... Our approach would be to find the historical roots of current expressions of oppression and injustice and see that as an opportunity to stop them in their tracks. So if transitional justice can reckon with the past and help to put that to a halt and perhaps transform societies now, that might be the best it could do, rather than thinking of the reparations frame, which I'm, I'm not ruling out, but it's much more difficult. But if transitional justice could be a tool to really delve into the past and find the origins of these structural injustices that are so difficult to change because they're so rooted in society, that may be its role, you know, to stop reckoning or, or acknowledging that colonialism never really went away. That might be a useful way of thinking about it, particularly for um, indigenous and Afro-descendant populations, because these are the people we find who feel it most in their everyday lives. Who that there's it's no coincidence, for example, that in Colombia the levels of victimization among ethnic minority groups are much higher. You know, these are ethnic minority groups that have their roots in terms of social um, positioning 500 years ago. That, that's, that's no coincidence. And that's where transitional justice may be able to do something, I think, rather than perhaps trying to sort out harms, five, specific harms 500 years ago. Thanks, Claire. I mean, that notion of coloniality, I guess, then links to, to my next question. You mentioned previously, and you know, there is a, a strong critique now in terms of transitional justice well, scholarship, I, I guess, potentially by extension practice, being dominated by mm. the global north. So... There is a, a relatively sort of strong critique, and there has been now for, for a number of years, that transitional justice is dominated by the global north. So given that sort of uh, context in terms of how, how knowledge and, I guess, power is, is constructed within TJ, do you think transitional justice is the framework for undoing colonial harm? Do you think it, it, it can or should do that? And I guess, if not, do you think, what other tools do you think might be effective or, or useful in, in this context? Again, that's a really important question. And just prior to answering that, I'm going to add something else. As well as trying to work out if transitional justice is an appropriate tool, bearing in mind its possible associations with neocolonial power or coloniality, we also have to address our role and positionality as researchers in this, right? Because we're working on Colombia, um, we're one British, um, two Irish researchers so, so how does that affect our relationship bearing in mind that if um, this is of interest to somebody it may result in some sort of practical implication in the future so how does that sort of politics of knowledge play out so we're caught up in this too as academics right but in terms of transitional justice and is it the correct route for dealing with colonial legacies well there's been some interesting discussion in the literature on this I'd say there's two sides and as always I shall sit on the fence um, one side says definitively transitional justice has to deal with colonial harm and in fact it's in its mandate to deal with colonial harms there's um, an author from Canada Augustine L. Park who talks about sort of residential schools and the experience of Canadian indigenous peoples in a settler colonial context and she says in those contexts in settler colonial contexts which we would actually include Latin America most of Latin America in um, that decolonization must be the ultimate end of transitional justice. It's inevitable, right? So you have 
that kind of approach. And then Mohamed Sesay, who's a colleague um, on the Gender Justice and Security Hub, very recently, a month ago, published an article talking about the, the incapacity of transitional justice to deal with colonial harm. He says it's too radical a project for transitional justice to deal with, that transitional justice deals with human rights violations under um, authoritarian regimes, in conflict settings, but colonial harm is much bigger than that and needs a more radical project, which I think is interesting. And in fact, um, in the second round of interviews that we carried out um, online in Colombia with indigenous and Afro-descendant women who've been involved in politics, when I asked them, you know, for them, was transitional justice the place to deal with the harms they suffered? They said, no, it's not really there. It's something different to that. So I think there's, I think there's some truth in, in, in both sides um, of the of the argument what, what I would say is it's a starting point I wouldn't rule out the capacity of transitional justice to do something towards colonial harm I think it's important and I think what we've seen in Colombia is just by including colonialism in the um, in the accord and the work particularly of the Truth Commission and the special jurisdiction for peace after it's been like an entry point for this um, so I think it's important I think it's probably a necessary but not sufficient approach um, to deal with colonial harm I think you have to attack it from different sides if I think specifically about the situation of indigenous peoples I'm obviously can't speak on their behalf but I have worked with and on um, indigenous organizations and mobilization in the past if, they, if you think of their demands, what they're actually asking for, there are sort of three key demands within indigenous movements generally in Latin America. One is for more autonomy. We see a lot of um, proposals from the state, from international organisations to include indigenous peoples within the general sort of state political system. But many of them, what they want is autonomy to run their own communities, to organise their own communities within the framework of the right to self-determination. There's been many sort of court processes in Mexico recently about this. So autonomy, greater autonomy, this has been confirmed by my interviews in, in Colombia, that that's a key demand in terms of you know, really um, recuperating their power um, and, and to strengthen their resistance. That's one issue. Another issue is uh, intercultural bilingual education. That was where the indigenous movement started in Latin America, talking about the importance of education to maintain and preserve their cultures and for that to be financed and structured conveniently. That's another area where change, a sort of decolonizing change beyond the realm of transitional justice could be approached. And the third point, which I've worked on and I think is super important, are specific rights to uh, free prior and informed consent and prior consultation, which essentially means that the, the state can no longer just encroach on indigenous people's lives and territories uh, and do whatever it thinks is right for the nation in general, but rather they have to be participant in the, in the process and at the very least be able to negotiate the terms, ideally to have a veto power if necessary. But those right, the right to prior consultation is super important. And I think um, sort of really making those rights in those political projects permanent and workable would be complementary to anything that a transitional justice process could do. They're not mutually exclusive, right? But there is this concept of transformative justice, which goes beyond transitional justice. And I think that might be a good place to look also at um, how these colonial harms that are ongoing, that's my main point, I suppose, they're not stopped, these are ongoing colonial harms, how might they be um, mitigated, you know, considerably? So I think yeah, that's it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. The transformative justice framework could be useful. 
So you've already uh, introduced a little bit what your um, interviewees have, have said about transitional justice and its ability to capture uh, colonial harm. But could you say a bit about perhaps in Colombia and Latin America mm. more broadly, you know, where we have indigenous and Afro-descendant people who trace their roots back to colonial power and slavery? What has their relationship been with transitional justice? Again, that's an excellent question. And it's coming to the fore now, I think, in, in academic spheres, you know, and in practical terms too. There was a report by the Due Process of Law Foundation at the end of last year looking specifically at the cases of Guatemala, which is like a paradigmatic case in this sense, um, Colombia and Peru, seeing how Indigenous peoples had been incorporated or not into the different transitional justice processes there. Um, and a colleague who works on both Peru, well, Guatemala, Peru and Colombia specifically, Lizalot Vian, um, she's worked again on this, trying to sort of find a connection between um, and for indigenous peoples in transitional justice processes. So th there is some interest academically in this. Um, and I think it's important to note that talking of transitional justice, for, bearing in mind the situation of indigenous peoples, as well as the conflict frame, the constitutional reform or constituent assembly situation is important for us to take into account. So in the case of Colombia, if we want to do a, a reading into the relationship between indigenous peoples and transitional justice, I think 1991 is a good place to start, which was the new multicultural constitution, which came after the disbanding of um, of guerrilla groups. And that really changed the panorama for indigenous people in Colombia. There is the law of victims of 2011, which has different laws of victims for the different ethnic groups too. Um, and then 2016 with the Havana Peace Accords, interesting because indigenous Afro-descendant black people really had to fight for inclusion. It was only in the last couple of months they were included in the talks that had gone on for three, four years. They were excluded. So they had to get public opinion on board to really fight for a place um, at the table. They were included, the ethnic chapter was included, and then their representation is seen on the transitional justice institutions that result from it. So I would say in, in Colombia, at least, the relationship between indigenous peoples and transitional justice has been close, but not always harmonious. I mean, that initial exclusion of years of indigenous and black representatives is considerable. That's a harm, right? And that reflects, I think, the current status of... Um, racial hierarchies, but one would say that indigenous peoples and black peoples are interested, seem to be interested, in transitional justice to the extent that it can further their agendas. And obviously, it's an opportunity, it's an opening to do so, and I, I would imagine that in many senses they may be disappointed with results, um, but it's a step forward, and I think in Colombia we can see that there has been sort of qualitative and quantitative steps forward at different moments of the transitional justice route, which is not just 2016, this is um, decades old. In the case of Guatemala, which is, say, the paradigmatic case of the relationship between indigenous peoples and transitional justice, um, bearing in mind that the, the ethnic majority being indigenous um, in Guatemala and victims, obviously, um, Efrain Rios Montt has been has had a sentence calling him uh, a gen genocide. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, uh, the, the relationship was much, much closer, um, even even more. So I think it can be a use, transitional justice, again, can be a useful arena for indigenous um, Afro-descendant black people in Latin America to make their voices heard. It's not the only one. It can be conflictive, it can be marginalising, but I think it's important. What what I haven't seen yet is a, a truth commission about colonial harm. That's, that's difficult to think of in that context, partly because as many academics working globally say independent post-colonial states really try to erase their relationship with the deep sort of Spanish past so to think of them having a reckoning 
precisely for Indigenous peoples from a transitional justice perspective is difficult to imagine. But a multicultural, intercultural constitution like we've seen in Colombia, uh, Bolivia, Ecuador, that's more likely. That's a different route, perhaps. So it's one of many avenues. And I think one thing I've learned, I hope I'm not misrepresenting, but one thing I've learned from Indigenous peoples, particularly in Latin America, is they will take any opportunity to further their agenda, you know, and they wouldn't be afraid to leave it if it wasn't um, working for them. And transitional justice is an opportunity. Thank you, Claire. I guess my final question, and you've already, through your previous responses, identified a sort of few specific ways in in which you might see this going. But like, what would your final thoughts be on like the way forward here in terms of how transitional justice or or peace building efforts might better respond to colonial legacies? A great final question. Again, as always, it depends on the context, right? It depends if we're talking about a state dealing internally with the past or one state perhaps asking another state for reparations for the past. I'll, I'll deal with states dealing internally because that's the context I'm working on. I think the, one of the key things is to visibilize problems that are ongoing and their historical roots. And I think even if it's a mi- very, very minor reference in the Havana Peace Accord, the fact that colonialism's there as the start of the current situation of harms experienced by many, a considerable part of the population, that's good. That's that's a, a step forward, you know, in terms of the narrative and constructing uh, ideas about how things work in the country. So transitional justice, if it can shine a light on that um, from the, the, the perspective of narrative, I think that's important. That's a good place to start. And if it can grow from that, if other ideas and other initiatives can sprout off from that, uh, that's important. And I think perhaps um, inadvertently the Colombian Havana Peace Accord has done that. Um, and that can, that can be seen in both the Truth Commission and the Special Jurisdiction for Peace. In terms of, say, talking about specific reparations and restitution, that's very difficult. But I think it can be part of a broader project to sort of decolonize the way people think and the way institutions operate. There's a great article um, by Hakimu Youssef um, that was published a few years ago, and he talks about uh, colonial legacy and transitional justice in Nigeria. And he has a, a great idea, I think, about saying that for transitional justice efforts to be successful, they also have to acknowledge the colonial structures of governance on which they're based. Right. So if these are political processes that are trying to deal with harm, how can they do that when they themselves repeat colonial hierarchies? So I think transitional justice does have to sort of decolonize itself in the process too. So these are learning processes. You can't undo 500 years of institutional uh, pathways from one day to the next. But I think naming things, being aware of historical roots, ongoing difficulties, and being sort of self-reflective about the colonial structures that may be included, incorporated with the transitional justice mechanisms and processes, that's a good good place to start. And as always, comparative learning, it's always good to look at different contexts, right, to see what's happening in one context and how that might be transposed to another. But my inclination is bearing in mind there's a real flurry of interest in this topic at the moment um, and a global situation in which there is a spotlight on race, responsibility, historical structures of harm. It's something we'll be seeing more of in the future, reflections on colonialism within transitional justice and beyond. Thank you, Claire. I know this is a huge topic, so I really appreciate you sort of 
um, pulling it together so eloquently and, and sensitively and reflectively for um, the period of time we have in the podcast. So we do show notes for every episode, so we'll pop in the references to Park and Sisay and Vianne's work and uh, the Hakim Youssef piece as well. Uh, my understanding is that you recently published a piece with um, with Bill Rolston and Fanula Neoline on this. Would you like to do a little shout out for it and we can include the, the full reference in our show notes? Oh yes, thank you very much for that. Um, yes, we recently published the results of the first round of interviews we carried out with academics in the journal Peace Building and the title is Navigating Colonial Debris Structural Challenges for Columbia's Peace Accord so there what we're talking about is this general absence of reference to colonialism and public discourse but nevertheless it's relevance um, for the process and even difficulties created by colonial legacies for the process itself the peace process Great, thank you Claire and thanks again for joining us today Thank you so much for the invitation Mm -hmm.